Welcome to Vermont Movement News, Volume 3, Episode 4. This is our fourth episode after a long hiatus. We felt that the recent wave of bigotry in the anti-CRT and anti-trans panics needed to be answered strongly. In this episode, we will be inter interviewing, interviewing Scott Frank. Scott is a history teacher who works at IDEA Frontier, a public school in Brownsville, Texas. For reference, IDEA stands for Individuals Dedicated to Excellence and Achievement. In his own words, he describes the anti-CRT backlash as an attack on educators, the understanding of the past, and worst of all, on our students fully comprehending and coming to terms with what happened and how to move forward. Welcome. Scott, tell us about yourself. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is, is Scott Frank, and I have been an educator now for 13 years. Uh, 10 of which have been at IDEA Frontier College Prep. And before that, I was also teaching for uh, three years in Kosovo um, from 2010 to 2013. And I did my student teaching uh, abroad. So I've kind of holistically, I've seen education from a variety of, of different places. In being in Kosovo, you really see the effect of uh, bigotry and historical um, manipulation. Uh, of course, yeah. So the students that I was were teaching, um, they, you know, they themselves had survived the genocide. Um, they were about seven years old when the conflict in Kosovo took took place with ethnic cleansing, and so yes, a variety of uh, situations and stories that uh, I got to hear over there. And uh, fortunately, um, they were able to come to grips with the past and now moving forward. Um, through you know, some reconciliation measures by Serbia and, uh, and with Kosovo at large. So can you tell me what, you, what you've dealt with in Texas with the current just absolute uh, frothing at the mouth attack on education and, and uh, trans youth? Sure, yeah. So in my, where I, I teach is, is primarily Hispanic, uh, primarily lower income. And so I haven't actually had any direct attack on me personally. I've I've kind of been prided my you know myself on the um, for from teaching kind of down the middle. My job, as I tell the kids from day one, is not indoctrination. My job is simply to present the facts to you, and you can make up your own mind on uh, how you feel about certain things. And you know there might be certain historical figures that we might have to take off the podium and and. Uh, look at them from the historical context. And that's what it's all about. We're all human. We all um, have our own issues. Um, and so for me, there hasn't been so much a, of an attack. Um, I haven't had any parent come in and say, I'm disheartened with what you've been teaching my son or daughter. Um, but there has been the fear of what could happen. I know that there are in some places bounties being put on teachers. And keep in mind, we're the very ones that, um, in my particular case, at least, uh, we were, you know, teaching through the pandemic. I've, I haven't missed a day going on 10 years at my current campus um, from the day I was hired. And I haven't even throughout the pandemic. And we were virtual for that whole year. But we also were in person uh, with some students that needed just that in-person instruction in, in very extreme cases. So this comes in the way. So from teaching through a pandemic and then day one of the last academic school year, uh, the CRT um, backlash. Uh, you know, was always in the back of my mind that, you know, at any given time, you step out of line, you take something that's out of context, and you could have a, a, a maelstrom on your hand. Has that changed the way you teach? Or do you simply teach the way 
the, the tell the facts and what really happened. Yeah, so I, I don't believe in censoring the past in any way, shape or form. Um, and so I haven't actually changed anything. And I know that that is kind of alarming to some, but I felt very strongly in the way that I've done things for the last 13 years, really, I mean, 10 years at, at Idea Frontier. Um, but, you know, whenever you're, you're not trying to do an indoctrination, I feel that, um, you know, just presenting the facts. Now, keep in mind, I do teach in an area that, um, you know, is lower income, is largely Hispanic, does seem to go more to the, the blue side, if that's, uh, you know, in Texas, if, if there is a purple or blue, uh, Brownsville, Texas would certainly be one of those, one of those regions. Now, if I was teaching in another region, you know, say Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, it could be different, but I've gotten compliments from both sides of the aisle through the years. But I tell you what, I've never had a situation quite like this in my 13 years of education uh, well, where I felt that at any given time I could be hypothetically, you know, let go. Um, and I've talked to my administration. Um, I talked to them before. I actually gave a presentation on what CRT was and what it, what it wasn't at the beginning of the of the academic year last year and on these bills, now laws that are in the effect of the state of Texas and other states in the union. Um, and so, you know, not all teachers are as outgoing uh, about this issue. Some say just stay below the radar, job security. Uh, but I believe that that's a disservice to our, to our students if, if we choose that front. Um, I don't believe that everything in those bills are, or now laws are evil and, you know, out to get certain people. But I do believe that there are certain things that are are quite alarming and I certainly need need to be addressed um, in running from the issues has never historically solved anything. So I think we need to stand up and, and you know, where we believe firmly in things, I think that we need to put our money where our mouth is. And uh, that's what I tell my students. Um, one person can in fact make a difference. So if I in some way, shape or form can make a difference, then, then so be it. Do you teach about the, rate, the uh, Tulsa massacre of 1921? Of course. Um, and I always have before this came into, you know, I think that in particularly the 1619 project, uh, you know, is kind of at the center of this. Um, and I think it's more divisive polit politics. I don't know any teacher in my experience that has been teaching critical race theory in the classroom. Do we teach things that are uncomfortable? Of course. Do we talk about slavery? Of course. How it was prevalent in every uh, colony and every state of the union? Of course. Um, those are things that happen. You can't run from the past, but you can look at things from multiple lenses and, and have kids make up, make up their own minds about it. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> I also talk about executive, uh, you know, executive order 9066, you know, Japanese internment during World War II, the Trail of Tears and its effects on the Cherokee, uh, the Creek, you know, tribes of the, the five civilized tribes of the Southwest, if you will. Um, you know, we talk about a lot of things that are uncomfortable. Um, you know, and I also teach IB history of the Americas. And so um, really for the better part of, of year two, because uh, I teach juniors and seniors, and when they go into senior year, we do spend a significant time addressing the civil rights movement. But to do that, we look at black history from 1492 in the Americas all the way to the civil rights movement as a whole. Now year one, they have a kind of a chronological thing about what happened for each particular group. And then we take it and then we compare it to South African apartheid. We compare it to the Mexican-American civil rights story. Um, and so just to look at things from different frameworks, because that's what history is all about. It's about perspective. Sometimes it's not right, wrong. There's elements of gray. And, you know, Andrew Jackson had some valuable things about him. He also had some things that were quite horrible, as did George Washington. I think he would even be one of the first to admit that. 
uh, Ben Franklin as well. You know, some of these people that we make monuments out of, uh, they would also recognize their own part of history and how do you, you know, come to terms with it. Ben Franklin himself owned slaves at one point in, in his history. I, but I think that there's certain things that we need to just come to grips with in the past. So I guess to answer the question in, in a more simplified version, um, I haven't uh, I haven't been teaching critical race theory because I have not been in a college classroom where I've ever been taught critical race theory. But I do teach my students to think critically about the past and certain things that, you know, presidents like Eisenhower, you know, think of, of the prosperity of the 1950s. Did he go? Did he do enough for civil rights? Well, there are some civil rights laws that came into effect. He did do Little Rock Nine, but it was, you know, kicking and screaming kind of to get him to, to move in that perspective. JFK, the same thing. And for Eisenhower, too, there was Operation Wetback. So, again, like civil rights, from one perspective, you know, it, it could get a certain grade and uh, another grade. And that's what we do. That's what I do a lot with my students as well. We, uh, we give presidents letter grades based on different aspects, civil rights, uh, domestic policies, foreign policy, et cetera. Is there much controversy like teaching about the Civil War? Because, um, you know, I, I always think about the controversy about the monuments, what what G General Lee said, there shouldn't be statues to me. We I, need to move on from this. I mean, I do not like uh, General Lee. Even Lee recognized there shouldn't be these statues to him. Right, of course, yes. And so I think that a lot of, with the statues in particular comes you know, with the daughters of the, of, of the Confederacy, um, you know, an attempt to kind of like change, now that you lost the war, change the narrative uh, of the past. But with the war itself, and keep in mind, I'm, in, I'm as far down in Texas as you can go. Um, you know, there used to be, you know, Confederate, you know, you know, it used to be called the Confederate um, airport, right? Um, but with the Civil War, you have to look at the historical documents. And so one thing that I, I do is I say like, okay, so let's let's look at this argument about that the Civil War was all about states' rights. It was all about heritage. Let's look at what the what the founders of the Confederacy had to say at it, say about it. And if you look at the founding documents of the Confederacy, in particular Alexander Stevens, the cornerstone speech, you know, it's it's pretty it's basically the Declaration of Independence for the Confederacy. It, it's it's very very clear, you know, that this new nation, and I'm paraphrasing it, that this new nation is built on the assumption that the uh, white man or that the Negro is not equal to the white man, right? It, it's, it's there in every constitution in the Confederacy. It's, it's, it's very prominent. So we kind of debunk that, um, uh, you know, as much as possible. But I, I, as I tell students, like, if you believe that it was about states' rights, that's okay. But what does your historical argument have to support it, right? You can't just say, I want it to be about states' rights. I want it to be, you know, I, I want... You know, I've seen the Dukes of Hazard. I want, you know, the, the, the Confederate flag to mean something other than what it does. You know, okay. But what, what does the historical record show? And what do the prominent players have to say about it? And more often than not, you know, students will realize it, it was about slavery, whether you're talking socially, politically, economically, slavery was fundamental to the secession of, of, of the Confederacy and, it's, and the constitutions that they wrote after their secession. Yeah, I loved it when people bring up that states' rights thing. thing. I'll, I'll agree with them. Yes, it was about states' rights, states' rights to maintain slavery. And that yeah. that's in every document. Mm -hmm. I think one kind of, I think it was Delaware made it a little bit covered, but it was clear. Right. You mentioned the daughters of the, of the um, 
Civil War. Uh, yeah, Confederates of the Confederacy. Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. um, are they very active in Texas? What are they are they doing? Or are they just a you know aging group in the background? I would say that they're more kind of an aging group in the background. Um, you know, they did play more of a prominent role, especially um, after the Civil War, um, trying to you know push this new agenda about what what the Civil War was all about. That's where you see most, not all but most of the monuments uh, being built. Um, to my knowledge, they're not as prominent as they used to be. Of course, they still exist, but there's not a, a real movement to put up more Confederate, Confederate monuments. Um, there is still this lingering effect though, because once you change the textbooks of, of the past, right? You, like you look at a Southern textbook from the 1950s and it makes slavery seem like this uh, happy-go-lucky uh, institution, which it was not. Uh, no matter how benevolent your slave master might have been, uh, there are things that were done to you that were, you, you did not have control of your own livelihood. Um, at, so, but once you change the past, you teach a generation that the Civil War was about states' rights, then the next generation, you know, you see it in the textbooks, and sometimes that's the end-all, be-all. Um, so, it's, especially when, you know, the Civil Rights Movement is happening kind of in front of you as you're re-examining the past, you know. Um, so yeah, and, and to answer your question on that, I think that, that the, the textbooks is, is the lingering effect of the daughters of the Confederacy. I, I don't see them as, you know, as a big force as they used to be. They still exist. They still support certain candidates. Uh, but to my knowledge, not as uh, not a force to be reckoned with as they once were. Not to say they couldn't rise again, hypothetically. Yeah, one of the people I watch in my area is a leader of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. So they're still around he's like a hardcore trumpist and he has mm -hmm. all sorts of confederate flags sure. and he walks he's the head of the motorcycle motorized division so he okay. wears a motorized jacket with about eight gajillion confederate symbols on it i believe um, it. so are the textbooks in te in texas revision revisionist history of of uh the civil war and slavery i think that most textbooks in our country still have lingering effects from it um, because textbooks by their very nature uh, want to be published um, and so a lot of times they'll kind of stay down the middle um, and um, so I, I to my knowledge and i haven't addressed every single textbook that every single you know place offers um, but to my knowledge uh, the textbooks still have effects where they you know I know that there was, I forgot exactly the phraseology, but it, it, this refusing to call it slavery, um, forced immigration, uh, I believe was the trait. I could be wrong on that. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but something along those lines where it's like, mm, no, this, this, this was human bondage. This is in fact what it was. So kind of a changing of the lingo, uh, particularly to certain age groups where it's, you know, it's kind of been this nebulous, like where exactly, when exactly do you teach uh, about about slavery. When is it appropriate to do so? Um, do you start it in kindergarten? Do you start it in first grade? Do you start it in third grade? Do you start it in fifth fifth grade when students have some uh, of, of an appreciation? I know from my own personal experience teaching in Germany um, and about the Holocaust um, that that starts very rapidly uh, in in not I don't think in kinder but. Uh, I believe around third grade when I was over in Germany doing my student teaching that every year 
there was something built into the curriculum about the Holocaust and about um, learning a little bit more, going a little bit deeper into how the Third Reich came into power, maintained power, and ultimately fell from power and its lingering effects. Um, and that continued all the way through, um, through, through high school. Um, and I think that that's one thing that Germany does particularly well now is addressing the past um, and having uh, students recognize that these things happened. And it's our responsibility to bear witness to that so it never happens again. Um, where in the United States, I think we like to, uh, we don't want to step on any toes uh, and we don't want, uh, we don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable, but sometimes the past is uncomfortable. You know, um, some of our monuments, some of our air bases <laughs> have been named after Confederate generals who did some, you know, um, pretty, pretty shitty things. You know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, not a stand up guy, you know, from my perspective. I'm sure he did some things in his youth that were nice, but, uh, as a whole, uh, I, I wouldn't want to name my child after Nathan Bedford Ford. I have friends who fled the United States because of Nazi persecution to mm -hmm. Berlin. Actually, there's two people I know who are in Berlin because of Nazi harassment in the United States. Um, one was a, a a computer developer who just by who she was became very controversial. She is a trans woman. Mm -hmm. And one of the activists who was at Charlottesville ended up leaving the U.S. because she became the target of Chris Cantwell. Um, Germany worries me. Yes, I know they constantly harp on the on the Holocaust, but the, the second largest political party right now in Germany is the AFD alternative for Deutschland, which mm -hmm. for all intensive purposes is, is a fascist party. And I, I have deep concerns for Germany. Any thoughts about uh, the situation in that country? Um, you know, I, I know that things have, have kind of changed uh, since I, I haven't been over to Germany since I think 2000, 2000 2009. Um, and I know that the situation has changed as it has kind of in, a, in many places uh, in Europe, which is also kind of alarming, this, this fact that this kind of you know, we said that we weren't going to do these things again, but yet it is. I don't think that history repeats itself, but it rhymes. And there's some there's some writing on the wall like we have been down this path before and we've seen where it leads. The United States has had kind of a, a nativist uh, slant since uh, 2016. Um, you know, immigrants have seemed to be more of a target than embrace. So I think, uh, you know, for the United States and our, you know, our former, you know, our, our allies, um, I think that we do need to be mindful of this rise of, uh, of authoritarianism that seems to be developing this kind of nationalistic, um, xenophobic uh, against anything that's not whatever you deem for the United States. It's historically been white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but whatever you want to fit that, that classification. I think that's what we need to be um, uh, conscious. And I think we need to be very, very careful because our national creed in the United States, at least, is, you know, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And that regardless of political orientation, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, yada, 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 right? There's many stories of the past, and there's no right or wrong. Another thing that concerns me is uh, the cooperation between the U.S. far right, particularly CPAC and Viktor Orban in Hungary. CPAC was in Texas last and Viktor Orban came to speak and the previous CPAC I believe was in Budapest Hungary 
And so we have U.S. Republicans going to Hungary, which has become a terribly corrupt and uh, authoritarian state. I used to work a lot with um, the Tor Project, you know, teaching people Tor and and stuff like that. And one thing in op open and pluralistic societies, you talk about this allows people to read what they want and it allows for freedom of discussion. But in authoritarian states like, like Hungary, it allows people to report um, oppression. So if you're promoting Tor in an authoritarian country, you'll talk about corruption. And it seems like there's an awful lot in common between corruption and this authoritarian right-wing stuff. I would, I would agree with that. It's so much reminiscent of uh, basically the Cold War of what you can and can't say and political undesirable political enemies and what happens to them if they don't toe the line. What, ha what are the stories of other teachers in, in Texas and who is persecuting them? So to my knowledge, I don't think anyone's been persecuted. Uh, you know, I, that could be different based on places, but at least in my district, at least where I teach now, there has, there's been more of a nervousness than, than anything. Um, a, okay, do I self-censor the past? Do I not talk about this particular slave rebellion? Do I not talk about the effects of Jim Crow? You know, because this was a national institution really uh all the way from the 1830s all the way to the 1940s whenever you see you know um judy garland dorothy from the wizard of oz and blackface it's a bit alarming you know it's not just al jolson and, and, and the jazz singer right um and, and so those are things that i talk about in my class those are things that i address um but i know that some teachers have said you know especially now that the laws are new you you don't want to be the one that becomes you know, the, the poster child uh, for uh, breaking said laws. So, but I, again, in my classroom, I don't break, I don't, I, I've looked, I've read the laws. I, you know, I, I'm not doing anything different in my classroom than what I've already done. But the thing that is alarming is that at any given time, there could be, you know, a, a, a student that takes something out of context. And then all of a sudden, I might have a situation on my hand. Um, I do know as well in Texas, um, because I teach IB history of the Americas, but I also have the kids take the AP exam and I do prepare them for that. I know that AP has also kind of stepped in on behalf of teachers, uh, particularly I, I remember last year and uh, the teachers, the basically college board was saying, if you're not teaching certain things from the past, including this, 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 and this amongst other things, if you are not teaching the curriculum of what college board is deeming necessary, you can actually use your, your accreditation to to, to this and you will no longer be, the kids can still take the exam. Of course, you can never stop a kid from taking, but you will lose your accreditation as an actually an AP school. So I think that that is, I think more than anything, that institution kind of stepping in on behalf of teachers has been a, a, a lifesaver. Now, if I was just a general, you know, just a regular middle school teacher talking about the past without a set curriculum from the International Baccalaureate, without the curriculum that College Board presents, it could be a very different story. Um, but as of right now, um, it's more fear, which is weird because we're coming out of a pandemic and teachers have given their, their, their utmost for, the, for these students. There's an exodus of qualified teachers that have said enough is enough for varying reasons, funding, um, 
you know, parents kind of being harassed. School board meetings, I know particularly in, the, in certain parts of our country that are getting out of hand, um, where, you know, as a parent, you have every right to choose which education, you know, you think your child is best, but to take step in for quote unquote experts, you know, people that have history degrees, uh, not to be elitist on it, but like for people that have history degrees that have studied it, right? And have, have the degrees and have gone and written a 50 page thesis that have presented it uh, in front of uh, their college professors to have someone step in and say, I don't like the way you're teaching it, why? Well, because I saw a video on YouTube. It's not the same, <laughs> you know. Uh, show me your story. I, it's all—it's all about argumentation. That's what the past is, is about: argumentation. What evidence are you using? What evidence are you using? And if it's just a, a YouTube video that you've seen, it's—I look at the primary source. A lot of times, I, I'm seeing a loss of truth. People, mm -hmm. there is no true anymore, and there's an attack on the legitimacy of any institutions or any sort of expertise and in place of the expertise they put conspiracy theories or right-wing populism and a lot of what i'm hearing about you in the in the school district is what classic free speech lawsuits talk about a chilling effect on speech i was actually expelled from school and we got i was put back in the college i was expelled for from with a free speech argument, and they use that chill, chilling of uh, the chilling effect uh, argument to to win to get a settlement from the, the college I was expelled from. You're feeling quite a chilling effect. Yes, um, and I and it's I think like just kind of looking at the big picture nationally, right? Um, I think you are seeing it among teachers coming under this chilling effect. Um, you're seeing at college campuses, even in the medical field. My mom has. You know, been an oncologist nurse for 44 years now. Um, and even, you know, doctors, you know, are having people come in. And you know, there's nothing wrong with, with I, I think free speech is one of the greatest things, but sometimes where are you getting your information from? How, you know, just because you see certain videos, you read certain things online doesn't make it, you know, it, it's comparing apples and oranges. They're not, they're not the same, uh, but, uh, you know, you can kind of do what you want. But I think, uh, for for educators, it is it is showing. I I I do believe in that. Um, you know, and if I didn't feel so passionate about what I was doing, um, I might choose to self censor more and just choose job security. And but I think that that doesn't do us any good because I have students literally that are you know most of them are Hispanic, low income, first generation, and they look at a, a standard textbook, especially in the United States. And they oftentimes say, where am I in here? Where's my place in here? You know, and my job, and I tell them like this, I often tell them like this textbook will lie to you, not usually because of what's in it, although that sometimes does happen, but because of what's left out. And it's our job to fill in the gaps. There are certain stories that aren't in here, Asian Americans, Mexican Americans, other Hispanic groups, the trans community, right? The, our, the stories aren't in there nearly as enough as they need to be. And again, our motto is e pluribus unum. You're not gonna agree with every perspective all the time. Heck even, you know, looking at the civil rights movement, Stokely Carmichael, you know, and John Lewis within SNCC, you know, through nonviolent coordinating committee, did not agree uh, enough so that there was a serious split there within one organization. But at least we can attempt to look at the past from different lenses and, and not engage in this propaganda. There's only one truth. And if you criticize Washington, if you criticize Ben Franklin, well, then you're not a real American. I think that a real American is someone that that looks at the past 
and looks at it from multiple perspectives and ultimately, you know, is, is not, um, is unfettered by, by the chilling effect. Yeah, history is so big. I, I'm also, my degree is in history and I don't, when I look at American history, I don't care about the presidents. What do I think of when I think of just after the American Revolution? I see history as a, as, a, as a struggle of the people. What do I look at? I look at the Whiskey Rebellion. I look at, at things like that. I mean, if you look at Howard Zinn's history, People's History of America, it doesn't talk about your presidents. There's so much more to history. And as I've said in previous um, podcasts, there's something called the Certain Days Catalog, which is sold by AK Press. It, I believe it grew out of, some of the Black Liberation Army people who created a calendar that talked about events of struggle. I mean, some of those you would talk about. You would talk about the slave rebellions, but most, most, um, most, um, most history looks towards the elites. The history I look at looks more towards the economics and the, the, the acts of bravery. I mean, who's the biggest uh, hero in American history for me? Well some of the people who fought back. The troublemakers, if you will, at times, right? So, yeah, uh, I mean, those are important to tell their stories. Right, and so I think it's, it's important to teach the, the bottom up and the top down perspective w with it. I mean, you, you have your leaders, but then you have the people that made the civil rights movement possible. The people that, you know, the, the unsung heroes from the American Revolution, um, you, you know, the, the list goes on and on. The, the, just the ordinary, if you will, Americans that were doing their job during World War II, you know, in Detroit, Black Americans, you know, in a city that, you know, <laughs> the arsenal of democracy, but yet there's a race riot in the same time that there's the Zoot Suit riots happening, you know, and many Hispanics being targeted there, but many of them actually had family members that were serving, but yet being targeted as un-American. So yeah, I think that you're certainly on to something there about, um, you know, who is the greatest and who, who do we make our monuments to? And I think that a lot of times it's those unsung heroes that, you know, you didn't even know they existed because nothing wrong with Dr. King and, and Malcolm X, but there's more to the story there. And there's always more to the story, no matter how many years you've been looking at it. What do you have to say about what's happening in the school board meetings? E even in liberal Vermont, I've, I've been to school board meetings in Rutland that were, had, was packed with far right people and people it was nearly fist a uh, fisticuffs over the students wanted to fly a black lives matter flag i was in uh, nashua uh, uh new hampshire and then and about a phalanx of nazis showed up and the week the month before proud boys showed up and they were all talking about you know these conspiracy theories that uh teachers are grooming uh, ch children. What do you have to say about this? This is what worries me the most. It, it does worry me. And I often look, my, both of my grandfathers were World War II veterans, grew up in the Great Depression in Missouri, right? I'm originally from Missouri, went to school up in Iowa and traveled abroad and now I'm in Texas, right? But I oftentimes think of what my grandfather <laughs> would have to say. Whenever swastikas show up to any rally, um, they, they certainly um, should create a sense of uneasiness about this, because I tell you what, my grandfather's fought against, you know, fascism, and they uh, would not uh, be taking this uh, uh, quietly. And so I think that one, look at what the other generation would have to say about the flag that you're supporting, right? Um, you know, 
a lot of times people are, you know, waving Confederate flags, but yet what would Washington have to say about such a thing, disunion? Uh, but it gets back on track here. Um, it, it, it makes me nervous. And I think for a lot of those parents that, I don't know if it was virtual learning and you got a glimpse into your son or daughter's classroom and you heard things that you didn't like, or maybe you didn't know, and you feel that there's some sort of indoctrination or a, a, a grooming of the past going on. What I always tell parents is step into my classroom any given day. You know, don't disrupt my learning. But if you step in there and you think that learning's not happening and you think that indoctrination's taking place, then let's talk about it. Let's have a discussion about it. Um, because my job is to prepare these kids for the real world. If I don't do it now, you know, with these 17, 18 year olds, the next step is college. And if, if, if we don't teach them how to think clearly, if we don't teach them how, what is factual historical documents and what is something that's taken out of context, manipulated to prove a certain political agenda, then what's going to happen to them? They're just going to be going along and, you know, watching some video on YouTube and thinking that they've done the research. And that's, that's, that's brainwashing is what that is. Um, and so I guess my biggest thing is if I was there at those board meetings, I would tell the parents to come into my classroom. Don't disrupt my learning, then we're going to have some problems. But if you come in, you know, and, and see what's happening, and then we can have a conversation the next week and we can discuss what's going on, because it is not indoctrination. It is not. Um, and it should not be. And if there is indoctrination going on, then that's a different story. But, you know, we also believe in freedom of choice. You know, if, if, if certain people want to put up a Black Lives Matter, okay, like you have a right to, I guess, carry your swastika into this meeting. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, that's when you start limiting freedom of speech in this country, it, 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 I think that when you look at John Adams' presidency, right, the Alien and Sedition Act, I mean, it sets a standard really quick that this is a very dangerous path to follow uh, when you start saying what is and is not appropriate. I mean, in my particular class, I mean, I read things that I'm not very fond of, not very fond of at all. I mean, we do read, I mean, we talk about World War II and the rise of authoritarianism. We read Mein Kampf not from start to finish, but we read certain parts of it. Uh, I, I've Mao Zedong, we, we read his little red book, um, you know, Fidel Castro. I, I, we read things that are, that are uncomfortable, but I think that ultimately there's a fear. And I guess this is kind of the greatest thing that comes out of this whole chilling effect is that there's a fear of what happens next. And I, and I think it, it, there's this fear that somehow people are teaching students to hate this country. And I don't think that that's where it ends up. I think that if you deny them certain tales of the past, then you lead to that resentment and that kind of, you know, that I've been indoctrinated. But if you show them what happened, have them come to terms with it. I don't care what political aisle they're from. When you look at the past holistically, as much as is possible in a year or a two year course, they, they leave more often than not loving this country. I haven't had a student yet that has left my, and I've had students that come into it feeling pretty disgruntled about the United States, right? But then when they leave, they're like, wow, like we have unfinished work and we need to get, get, like get started now. But the thing about our country that's made it great historically over time is that we've been able to come together to solve great problems. But now we seem to be becoming more polarized. So that I think is the greatest legacy of, like we have a choice right now. We can either accept the status quo we can have teachers that submit and say, I'm not even just job security, but then what does, where does that lead the next generation? Uh, I don't think the founders would be impressed with it. And I know that some of them were slave owners and I get, but like in terms of free speech, I don't think they would be very impressed with, <laughs> with where that's 
or, or that's leading us as, as a country. Because we're supposedly children of the Enlightenment, not children of indoctrination and, and brainwashing and, and conspiracy theory. I mean, I, when I think about free speech, it, it, free speech, when the First Amendment was written, was very different than after, uh, what was that decision, 1965, with the, with the Klansman who... Yeah, um, it, it escapes off the top, but I, but I yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I mean free, free speech has expanded greatly um, since, since the 1950s. In the 1930s, it, it was very... I mean, Eugene Debs got thrown in, in prison for sedition, like we're talking about the Alien and Sedition Act. Um, it's, it's expanded, and I, I think it's a little bit slippery to talk about what the founders would say, because freedom, you, you could get in a lot of trouble in 1800 for a lot of what you said, or even, even you know, right after the uh, revolution. So. And what you were saying about America, about your people becoming proud of America. What makes me proud of America? I think about the Flint sit-down strike. I think about Pullman. I think about the history of the IWW, the civil rights movement. They're a problematic um, example, but the weathermen are inspiring in some ways. And mm -hmm. uh, they're also inspiring as how much of a mistake they made in a lot right. of ways. <laughs> The yuppies too, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, just it, it, again, history is about perspective, right? Like one person's hero might be another person's enemy, you know, in that regard. But there's something in there that that that's for everybody, you know. Um, yeah. So, um, is there anything else you'd like to speak to, to in this interview? No, I think just kind of, uh, kind of, I guess to close it out, if you will, I think that. You know, if you are a teacher out there and, and you feel nervous, um, I think that our strength comes in coming together um, to voicing our concerns. And that might mean a letter to a, to a legislature. That might mean teaming up with other teachers because laws happen by politicians. And I, I, I want to be an optimist on this. I don't think that this, these you know, laws came into existence because they wanted to crucify teachers. And, but I think that they came from a place of, misguided information. And I think that it's our job, just when we have students that come into our classrooms with, with facts that aren't quite right, uh, to, to lay the record straight and be like, this is what the historical facts say, these are what the laws say. You know, and I think that we can change things. I think that it's just because these laws exist now, we've seen plenty of times where laws cease to exist for better or, or for worse. And it comes through grassroots movement of, of teachers coming together. So. I would say to my, my teachers uh, from whatever aisle you happen to be politically, that if you feel passionate about students not being indoctrinated, then you have a, an obligation to step up. Because if you don't, who will? Uh, and so I think that's, that's the greatest thing that I have to, to say about um, you know, this, this issue that we face. And keep doing what you're doing. You know? If you're doing quality work in the classroom, many people are leaving right now. They're, they're going to other careers that maybe even pay less, but they say, at least I don't have to deal with parents saying certain things and posting certain things. And, uh, you know, I, what I say continuously gets taken out of context and turns into a bigger thing when all I'm trying to do is teach your child uh, the curriculum that has been given to me that I have reflected upon, analyzed, and now trying to, to put it into, put into place. So stay strong, stay tough. And uh, I think, you know, our jobs to educate and, and to help the future. And that's what it's all about. And if it's ever about something other than that, it's ever about indoctrination, 
well then maybe the time is to step away from the classroom but if it's about helping the future stay in those classrooms and fight the good fight for us all before we get off can you give some advice on how you counter absolutely false information how do you the people who believe just utterly false stuff without evidence how do you how do you counter the conspiracy theorists well, I'll tell you, I'll start off with how I, how to counter a conspiracy theorist. Number one is not to tell them that they're stupid and wrong because that gets nowhere. Uh, but what you, what I, what has worked uh, for me in particular with, you know, friends across the aisle and, and certain students that want to believe a certain thing is a consistent dialogue and looking at the facts, because I think we live in a time of our echo chambers and we want to hear things that sound like us. And if someone's not like us, we want to cancel them. And both sides are guilty of this uh, as of late. And it's a dangerous place. So the, the greatest advice, I guess, that I've witnessed from my own personal experience is to treat the other person as though they are a human being worth dignity, regardless of how out there you think their conspiracy theories are, and to look at the evidence. And sometimes it's to say, like, well, where did you get that evidence? And to stay calm, not to get out you know, uptight and, you know, getting into fisticuffs because we've already seen where that goes and it's not pretty and we've been there for years now, um, but it's to have a dialogue. Where did you get that? Okay, let me show you my side of the story. Let me show you mine. And, you know, sometimes there's people out there that don't really believe things and are trying to be trolls. And there's some people that just are misinformed. You know, you look at um, some of the conspiracy theories after World War One that, you know, Hitler used in his rise in World War Two, saying that Jews didn't contribute it when to, to World War One effort when in fact that's not that's not true. And so you look at the historical record, look at the enlistment numbers, and and, and things seem to, to work out. Um, but I think the the biggest thing is is to treat the other person as though they have dignity and and respect. If you can keep free speech open and if you can keep, you know, the conspiracies of you know of, of some people as a minority then the majority wins in this country. You know, we're not a true democracy. We're a republic, uh, indirect democracy. But I, I think that that's true. Treating the other person with dignity, treating them with respect, hearing what they have to say, because sometimes they just want their voice to be heard. They don't want to be corrected. And then once they have their voice heard, then you can start the process of, of dialogue. But you have, to, you have to see them as a human being. If you see them as an us versus them, this tribalism, it will get us nowhere because it's getting us nowhere in many circles. Um, so dialogue is, is key and that dialogue has to stay, stay open. And I think right now we're slamming the door in each other's face and saying we don't want to talk. And we've been down this road before and it has led to civil war. Um, and I hope that we don't have two separate Americas because that's not a pluribus unum. That's a nation divided. People, a lot of people talk about Texas seceding. And I answer that is there's a lot of people who would be really hurt if the far right took Texas away because there's there's many progressive communities. There's lots of, there's, there's gay people, there's trans people, there's, there's people from Central America and all around the world who live in Texas who would be harmed if the extreme right was able to have much more control over them. It would be, it would be very difficult for Austin <laughs> to, you know, the capital of, you know, of, of Texas too, you know, because that city is very progressive. And Texas is largely largely red in many spots, but not entirely. It's, it's there. There could be a switch to make Texas uh, purple uh, or even blue in the future. But yeah, I, 
I don't know if it would be if it were to hypothetically secede, if it would be able to hold on to its own capital city. Um, their capital city might secede amongst the seceded state. It has been a pleasure uh, speaking to you. Do you have anything you wish to plug, a blog, a Twitter account, or anything like that? Uh, no, I, I mean, I have a YouTube channel, you know, Scott Frank's YouTube channel. If, if people are interested, I do big concept maps on the board and I, you know, um, but nothing to plug, just quality education. You know, believe in your teachers. We need them now more than ever. Um, so not necessarily for me, uh, but for all those educators out there that are in some school districts that aren't as, as fortunate as mine, um, you know, support those teachers. You know, sometimes a thank you card goes a long way. Uh, especially now as uh, we're dealing with social and emotional issues, active school um, shootings. Um, you know, it's, we need quality teachers in the classroom to prevent uh, things from happening like that. So support those teachers. That's my, that's my biggest plug. Excellent. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, this has been Vermont Movement News, Volume 3, Episode 4. Thank you very much. Thank you.